This Word on Fire Minute is brought to you by Advantage Futures. As Catholics, we must take advantage of new technology to spread the faith. Wordonfire.org is on the front lines, featuring the work of one of the church's best messengers, Father Robert Barron. At wordonfire.org, you'll find inspirational podcasts, videos, audio sermons, books, DVDs, and the Catholicism Project. It is one of the most ambitious efforts ever to promote the Catholic faith to the world. Catholicism is Father Barron's global documentary series, filmed in high definition and now in production for TV and DVD. Father Barron's series will illustrate the beauty and depth of the church and explain the Catholic faith on our own terms. It will be an exciting new way for families, parishes, and schools to teach Catholicism. Preview the production, join our email list, and contribute to the Catholicism Project at wordonfire.org. Become part of the story today. This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us, so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you, and Happy Easter. We've come to the great climax of the church year, the most important day in the church calendar. We've come to Victory Day, the day of resurrection. Friends, I'm sure you've noticed that religion is under attack these days. Bookstores are filled with tomes such as God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris, which debunks all of religion. They're all intended to undermine the very idea of God and the practice of religion. This past fall... I spoke about it earlier to you. The comedian Bill Maher came out with a movie called Religious. It mocked all religious believers as stupid and superstitious. On the internet, on YouTube, you can find a movie called Zeitgeist, which also maintains that Christianity is just a joke. The specific line of attack in Zeitgeist is interesting. It's to insinuate that Christianity is just one more pathetic iteration of the ancient myth of the dying and rising God. So, in the Egyptian story of Horus, we find an account of a God who is killed and then rises. Something similar is on display in the myth of Dionysus among the Greeks, or in the tales told about the Hindu god Krishna among the Indians. Therefore, the movie contends, Jesus' resurrection is, in a similar way, an edifying story, a myth, a legend, if you want, representing, as the other ones do, the wishful thinking of the human race. This feast of ours today, this great feast of Easter, is, on this reading, just silly. We're wasting our time fussing with Easter. 
But friends, I want you to notice something, something that C.S. Lewis noticed. C.S. Lewis, like his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, was a careful student of mythology. Both of them, in their, in their roles as academics, were teachers and students of mythology. Lewis said, those who claim that the gospel accounts are mythic in form haven't read many myths. <laughs> That's a very important idea, isn't it? Those who claim, hey, it's just one more version of the old myth, haven't paid attention to the structure and literary content of the myths. What Lewis saw, Tolkien too, was that there's something qualitatively different about the way the gospel story is told. Go back to the Horus, Dionysus, and Krishna stories. They are set in no specific time or place. The great religious scholar Mircea Eliade, one of the, one of the greatest students of myths in the 20th century, said that myths are set in illo tempore. That's the Latin term. It just means in that time or once upon a time. Or think of Star Wars, a long time ago in a galaxy far away. That's the form that mythic writing tends to take. How come? Because the myths are about the rhythms and necessities of nature. They are meant to transcend space and time because they speak of these great general truths. Now, I can't, in the in the course of this brief homily, go into all the details, but the Horus myth is about the ebbing and flowing of the Nile. If you decipher the language, it's about the rhythms of, of the Nile and how that affected Egyptian life in such a basic way. It's about the rhythms of growth and development in agriculture. It's also indirectly about the emergence of the pharaohs as the governors of Egypt. The Dionysus myth, and again, I can't go into all the details, but it's about the growth of vine and grapes and, and the formation of wine, which was a, a key element in the life of the ancient Greeks. Now, mind you, I like the myths. I appreciate the role they played in our culture and many other cultures. I reverence those people who composed them, who wrote them down. They weren't trying to mislead anybody. I agree with Joseph Campbell, the great comparative mythologist, who talked about the very important social function that myths played. They help people understand their world in terms of, of the natural rhythms, but also their, their sociological setting. Myths have always played this very important role. But, but, myths are to be sharply distinguished from history. Myths are about the great general natural necessities. History is about particular things and events. The Bible, and I want, I want to stress this, the Bible is not primarily a mythic book, though there are elements of myth in it. It's primarily an historical book. It respects God's activity in the rhythms of nature. It sings the beauty of God's ordering of things. But its main focus is on particular acts of God within history. The call of Abraham, this particular figure from Ur of the Chaldees, the formation of a people Israel, not people in general, this particular people, their exodus from Egypt, 
the conquest of the promised land, the emergence of King David, the Babylonian exile, etc. The Bible's about these particular historical events. And this instinct is on display clearly in the New Testament as well. Even the most casual survey of the text of the Gospels reveals that Jesus is not a mythic figure like Horus or Dionysus or Krishna. How come? Because he exists at a very particular time in history. We hear in Luke's Gospel that he came into the world when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and Augustus the emperor of Rome. Those aren't generic names. Those are very specific people whose existence can be independently verified in all kinds of ways. More to it, Jesus came of age during the reign of Herod and Herod's son, Antipas. Also figures that can be verified historically. More to it, he was, as we affirm in the creed week after week, crucified under a very particular Roman official named Pontius Pilate whose existence can be independently verified. There are coins that bear the inscription of Pontius Pilate. In other words, there is no attempt to place Jesus back in some vague or nebulous period. There's every attempt to identify him specifically. With that difference in mind, let's turn to the account of his resurrection from the dead. Now again, if you're tempted to say, well, it's just one more telling of that old story of dying and rising gods, one more iteration of this old myth. Ah, but read these stories more carefully in the Gospels. We hear of very particular individuals. Mary Magdalene. That's Mary from Magdala, a little town on the Sea of Galilee. We hear of Mary, the wife of Joseph. These women who come to the tomb. More to it, we hear of very particular figures, Peter and John, who race to the tomb, one outpacing the other. I find it so intriguing here. Why would they have bothered with that little detail? Unless it had been vividly remembered. You know, if you're telling a myth about a dying and rising God. You're not going to fuss with, well, who got to the tomb first? Who outran whom? But you listen to someone tell a story about what happened to them. Maybe they're recounting a, an auto accident. They're recounting some, some uh, uh, significant meeting they had. They would include little details like that. We even hear in our gospel for today of the peculiar arrangement of the burial cloths the linen that wrapped the head of Jesus set off by itself. Now, again, friends, think about that. You're telling some generic myth about a dying and rising God. Would you fuss with that? Would you fuss with how the burial clothes were arranged? Doesn't that detail have every indication of being something that was vividly remembered? As they told that story over and over again, that detail was remembered. Why would they bother with it? if they were just telling a generic story. Furthermore, in the reading from the Acts of the Apostles in our liturgy for today, 
we hear of Peter speaking of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And I love this. Of his eating and drinking with the apostles after his resurrection from the dead. Why would you possibly bother with such details if you were trading in mere mythic discourse? It's this instinct for the specific that I want you to see. But what is most convincing? What's most distinctive? What's most strange about the Jesus story is this. The risen Jesus had witnesses. Peter, Paul, James, Matthew, Thomas, and the rest who went to the ends of the world and to their deaths declaring the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Here's a question for you. Why were there no missionaries of Horus? Why did no one go around the world and to their death declaring the truth of the story of Horus? How come there are no missionaries of Dionysus? How come nobody went to the ends of the world and to his death declaring the truth of Dionysus? Well, there's a very easy answer to that. And it's no judgment at all on anybody. It's simply that these weren't real figures. And the people who told their stories knew it. Now, see, again, the the mythic writers knew what they were doing. They weren't trying to dupe anybody. They knew they were trading in these literary accounts that were evocative of the natural necessities and rhythms of nature. But by God, this Jesus risen from the dead had witnesses who vividly remembered him, who vividly remembered his terrible death, and who vividly remembered his unnerving resurrection. That's the difference of Easter. That's what gives the lie to these debunkers of Christianity. That's what convinces us that we're not dealing with one more iteration of the old story. And it's because of these witnesses, whose stories we can still read, it's because of them that we've gathered here today to celebrate. Because God has done something unrepeatable, remarkable, distinctive, unique, God has interrupted the rhythms of nature in raising his son from the dead. That makes all the difference. And that's why we've gathered to celebrate. And God bless you on this Easter day. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.